HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Foster Sundry, a specialty grocery located in Bushwick, Brooklyn. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Welcome to the Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel. And on today's episode, we have Stacey Adamondo, Sever Magazine's EIC. Um, but th- this is a story about how she began her pursuit of the most perfect antipasti as a way to find fullness in family. Uh, and it was really during a solo trip to the southwestern tip of Italy's boot that she met her grandfather's cousins, their kids, grandkids, and bonded over plates after plates of so-called appetizers. These dishes inspired her book, Piatti, Plates and Platters for Sharing, inspired by Italy. And, you know, whether we're talking about Grandma Stella's broccolini frittata or Nana, Nanny's veal br- bracciolini, mm-hmm. uh, taught to Adamando by her 100-year-old great-uncle Joe, these family recipes are the best parts of her Italian-American upbringing, and she's very proud to bring them to your family tables, too. So welcome, Stacy. Thank you. That was such a nice introduction. Well, you know, we've known each other for a while, and we've snacked and we've grazed, and I feel like that is the, the basis of what Piatti is and maybe your, your food lifestyle. Um, but I, I didn't know about you and find this fascinating that your parents don't speak Italian, but your grandparents are, you know, uh, very much Italian. Your father grew up on Mulberry Street, which I think of as Little Italy, and just assume that you know that language was part of the lineage. What? what let's explore that separation first. But how food holds all that together? Yeah, awesome question. So, yes, I very much consider myself Italian American. Um, right, my dad grew up on Mulberry Street, so that's the heart of obviously Manhattan's Little Italy, and. He was there for, you know, around 20 years. Um, My grandfather cooked and, you know, shucked clams at the San Gennaro Festival and the whole thing. But, um, and and so this is on my dad's side. On my mom's side, uh, they were also Southern Italian. And um, I had said to my grandfather at one point, like, Grandpa, you know, you always talk about our relatives that are somewhere off in Reggio Calabria. Like, 
you know, could I, could I go meet them? I want to go find them and, and meet them. And I remember my grandfather, he had this like amazing laugh. He like laughed and laughed and he was like, wait a minute, you know, it's not nice in Reggio, right? <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, I had been traveling around different parts of Italy since I was in college, just wanting to know as much of the country as I could. And I think he thought maybe I was imagining like Milan or Rome or something. And he was sort of, you know, getting a chuckle out of it, thinking like, this is just much more of a meager place. Um, and I think that kind of, you know, circles back to the answer of your question, which is that our great grandparents didn't seem to think that they uh, needed to show us Italy and, and to go back. They, you know, in their minds, it was this place that they didn't have much and there wasn't much going on. And they left to just make this, you know, bigger dream and better life. So even though, you know, times weren't exactly always easy and, you know, everything wasn't always flourishing at all times when they came to the States, I think they just sort of were okay with leaving Italy behind. You know, my dad's name was Carmine. And I think that very much uh, while he was working in New York City trying to make a name for himself, I think he felt kind of ashamed of that a little bit and sort of felt like, you know, the Italians stick together in, in Manhattan. They all live in Little Italy and everybody has these stereotypes of them and what their families are like and what their accents are like. And my dad was sort of like, I don't really feel like I fully associate with that and I want to be more and, and, and know more people outside of that circle. So I think for a couple of generations, it felt like we don't need to hit people over the head with the fact that we're Italian American. Like, let's just kind of keep that as a side note. It's going to be the theme of all of our gatherings. Always. We're always going to eat all Italian food, but like, we don't need to kind of like be in your face about that. And it's, the reverse when we're talking about your relatives in Reggio Calabria, too, because they didn't speak English. Uh, they lived in that classic Italian four-family home with chickens in the garden. And I love the description in the book of tiled floor and cru crucifixes. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But what, aside from blood, was that automatic bond? Well, first of all, I think they're just so moved that, you know, I was I'm, I was in my late 20s and I just, you know, had this passion to go find my heritage. And I think they were so moved that I just came there by myself solo and learned, you know, crash course in Italian to speak to them as much as I could. And I did pretty darn good, by the way. Um, but just to seek out, you know, I, I hovered around the stove as they were cooking and I asked a million questions and my eyes lit up every time they brought out something that to them was like the basic, like, you know, nothing lunch that cost nothing out of the garden. I mean, I was like taking pictures of everything they did. Like they were just so moved um, that I found this also exciting. And I think they you know, I was the only connection to them, to our American family. So uh, I brought, you know, pictures with me of my grandparents' wedding and what all the grandkids look like and who's married to who and who's named what and who's the sibling of who. And that was the first time that they had seen anything since my grandfather's, uh, you know, a picture from him. I think he was in his 20s in the army that my great grandfather had sent back to Italy. Like he was so proud of my grandpa in his uniform. And that's all they had. I mean, this was my grandpa Frank to me and to them it was like Francesco. Oh, like we kiss his picture and you know, it's like this like long lost relative of theirs that I was reconnecting them with. So all this cajoling, you know, being excited to see family and regale in in these tales. Do you remember those first bites and did you fill up before dinner? Yeah, well, so what was really <laughs> What was really funny is I, I was so excited for them to cook. You know, I had gone to culinary school and I was, you know, a food writer and a food editor. And I'm like, oh, I can't wait to like glean all this stuff from them. 
And the first night they took me out to dinner and I was like, oh, I don't, I mean, that's nice. But like, I don't, I don't know. I just kind of want you guys to cook all your stuff and teach me things. And so it was the next day at lunch that they first cooked for me and they made it like no big deal. You know, a couple of aunts kind of got together and they're all in their like adorable little like house coat type things. And, you know, they're like, oh, we're just going to cook you a little lunch, just you know, a little lunch. So they bring out, you know, four or five big platters of things. And I'm like, you know, my eyes are like bugging out of my head. I'm like, oh, this looks so delicious. And I start digging in and there's, you know, white beans and sausages and vegetables and like big loaves of bread and all this stuff. And I'm like, wow, lunch was great, you know, and I'm stuffed because you eat so much because Italians, they take it so personally how much you eat or don't eat. So I'm like, oh, that was great. And then they brought out lunch. <laughs> it was like, oh my God, that's just the antipasti. And I had written this email to my mother kind of describing the, the, the you know, memory to her. And I said in it, you know, they kind of like, they could have stopped after the antipasti. You know, that was enough. And, and I really loved it. And I started to realize like, gosh, I kind of often feel that way. Not that I don't love pasta or, you know, don't get excited for like a secondi or, you know, dessert or whatever. But I do think that if someone just let you like run free on antipasti, like that would be a great meal in and of itself. Yeah. And, and as a traveler, uh, you want to try to hit as many places as possible. And yeah. you've mentioned Milan and, and maybe Venice and Florence, I feel like is a city where you want to graze around those places. Definitely. Uh, you mentioned Rome and the Osterias also as a little bit of inspiration because of those small plates that they have. What, what are some of your favorites? Well, it, again, it's, it's kind of like really rustic stuff. It's often like vegetable based. I mean, I think of like, I think I described in, in the book, a dish that I had in Rome that was just sort of like white beans in a puddle of olive oil. And you could tell that, you know, they're cooked from scratch and there's maybe some garlic and these little crispy bits of like pork sausage in there. And that's just something that you have with your first glass of wine and like, you know, lap up all the juices with a piece of bread or, you know, they have those crispy artichokes. So they're like, you know, flattened. Um, it's like the full artichoke is flattened in a pan and just deep fried and you can eat every piece of it. And just the crisp is so great. And they're, you know, doused in good salt. And I mean, it's things like that, that, you know, I, I think your jaw just drops when you have them for the first time and then the pasta and then all that. And you're already excited. But like that first couple of bites, you're like, I'm in Italy and this is just epic. And they are filling. My favorite is like Fiore de Zucca. You know, I love the stuffed zucchini blossom, but you know, fried and cheese. So you you kind of have to pace yourself or seemingly you don't because you could write a book about just having (laughs) all the food prior to the meal. Um, when did you realize, uh, because we, we can talk about your career, which is just, you are a shining star right now in the industry. You've done so much oh to change the voice and tone. Uh, you're the editor-in-chief of Server Magazine, we'll talk about the little. You won a James Beard Award for Nopolito, a cookbook you wrote with uh, uh, Gonzalo Guzman from mm-hmm. uh, San Francisco. Um, these are other people's cultures you're usually writing about. When did you turn it upon yourself? Well, it's funny because it actually took me a while, um, excuse me, to give myself the time to do that. So, um, you know, I kind of, I think probably a lot of us feel this way when you first break into food writing or you're starting out your career, you want to be as well-rounded as possible, or or I did at least. So I'm thinking, you know, I got to study everything. I want to travel everywhere. I want to know as much as I can about, you know, the world of cuisines and Um, all the while I have this wealth of knowledge that just, you know, I was basically born into all the dishes that we ate growing up. 
Um, you know, a lot of the parts of Italian culture that I just knew about from being around them, those travels that I just did for fun at the time. I wasn't researching anything. I was just, you know, having a craving for Italy and wanted to go back. So I had all that knowledge and it was just kind of kicking around in the background, but I always felt like, well, I mean, that's stuff I know, you know, I don't, I don't need to write about that because that's just like second nature to me. I'll write about the stuff that I can deep dive into and explore. And, you know, I, I just wanted to keep learning. So the job at Savert was just amazing for that because that is your job. You know, it's like do as good of a job as you possibly can to tell the stories of other food cultures around the world or hire the people and, and collaborate with the people who can do those great stories and, and photos and all that. So, you know, that was that was preoccupying me for so long, but it was just starting to nag me over the last couple of years. Like this is my identity largely. Um, and it's a gift. And, you know, a lot of people, I remember, uh, you probably know Josh Ozerski, who, you know, is a fantastic food writer who we lost like way too soon. But Josh used to say to me all the time, oh, Stace, you know, I, I love hearing your stories about your Italian family. Like, I wish I had that, you know, I wish I had those traditions. I mean, you know, he sort of ate a very traditional American diet growing up. And, um, I think the things that were just basic weeknight staples to me sounded so exciting and wonderful to him. And it started to kind of help me realize like, wait a second. Yeah, this, this is a gift and it's not something that everyone knows as well as I do. I can't just take it for granted. Like this is part of me. So I started to get the idea for this book, you know, five or six years ago, kind of thinking, I never seen anyone talk about the antipasti. They talk about the pasta, they talk about the dishes, but like never about that that antipasti and what that actually is to the culture. And that is kind of a single subject. It's a very broad one, and you've done some of those books in the past, a uh, short stack uh, edition about cherries. Um, do I dare bring up Cookiepedia? Oh, dear God. Um, I did. <laughs> Tried to bury yeah. <laughs> that deep, deep into the internet. <laughs> but what, what is the difference between, you know, moving away from a collaboration, um, maybe it not being totally a single subject but engrossing yourself in, in just the world of Piatti, do you have to put blinders on or how do you start digging deep? Well, it's kind of cool because when you know something that well, I mean, certainly, you know, I researched, I read old Italian cookbooks, I traveled around and started taking notes all the time. You know, I had like notes everywhere and all my emails and, and like all these different like ways I would store them. Um, and, and then that was constantly going on in the background, but because it was kind of like a slow build over the course of a couple of years, I didn't ever feel completely immersed and preoccupied in it. Even when I was writing the book and actually doing the shoots and styling all the food and everything, that was during my job at Sever largely. So I had just, you know, sent Nopolito to the printers. It came out that year and I was kind of at work on this book, Piatti, just like on the side. Um, so it was mostly just, you know, nights and weekends, like getting to indulge in those ideas that I had had kicking around for so long and jotted down, but never actually tried. Or, um, you know, we, my husband and I would often just like end up eating the antipasti plates for dinner. So it kind of was like this subculture, you know, like, like second lifestyle I was living, but it, I never had to give it a hundred percent of my devotion because it was always just going to be happening in the background naturally, I think. What are the kind of genre bending dishes in this book? I think of, you know, crudités, um, you know, charcuterie platters, cheese, uh, and you do have that in this book, but what are the things that have blurred the line and, and gone outside of the Italian arc. Yeah. Well, you know, I think I try, what I tried to do was stick to the pillars of what I think Italian antipasti are and then kind of play with those 
from my perspective. So, you know, clearly, again, I'm, I'm an American cook. I'm an Italian-American. Um, I've worked with cuisines from all over the world. So I have like a lot of fun ingredients in my pantry. And I love to go to the farmer's market and just get inspiration there. And that, I think, is a very Italian mentality. So I tried to take some of those things and say, you know, from, from my perspective in my current cooking situation and place in life, like, what is the antipasti like I would, you know, gravitate towards or kind of invent or reinvent a little bit. So many of the recipes in the book are straight up Italian, like pinned to certain regions in Italy or their family recipes. And then others are kind of my invention based on those pillars. Um, yeah, you brought up crudités, like, you know, there, there are some words in there, like I do a um, cherry tomato confit and you know, I think my editor at one point was like, well, is there an Italian word for confit? And I was like, I'm sure I could like dig up that word. Yeah. But like everyone here knows it as confit and that's where the book's going to sell. And that's how I talk about it. And it's a technique of just cooking something in fat. We can explain that that's, you know, a thing that they do in Italy. They, they sort of poach uh, fish in olive oil and preserve it. Um, they preserve vegetables under like an olive oil, you know, inside jars. I mean, it's all kind of the same thing, but it's just the basic word that we would use, you know, so I didn't try and be like a stickler for, um, you know, the, the exact language and every single ingredient being identical to the way that an Italian in a certain region might make it. I just thought, hmm, this dish is so good, but what do I want from it? If I wanted a pop of crunch, I added something that was crunchy. If I thought I needed some color because it was looking kind of drab, like I, I did that and I, I infused my own culinary knowledge into, you know, this great tradition. Yeah, I, I don't know if this was an intention or not, but you also chose not to use many Italian names in, in the name of the recipe. Yeah. Um, is that an approachability thing? What, what was the... Yeah, I thought so. I mean, I don't see the reason if you could describe something as, you know, like clams with broccoli rob, why you have to put it in the book as like, Mongolia with rapini. You know, it's like sort of like let it... It's just the way that we talk, I think. Um, there are a couple dishes that I think don't really have, um, and a, you know, an, an English equivalent. So the brajolini that you brought up before from my great grandmother, it's like, it's brajolini. There's nothing, I mean, I could call it like a veal roll up, but that sounds gross. You know, brajolini is the way that we talk about it in my family and it is what it is. So I, I left certain things, um, that I thought were sort of like, you'll get it, you know, you'll get that. Well, we're going to get a lot more antipasti talk soon. We're going to take a quick break. You've been listening to The Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Foster Sundry, a specialty grocery located in Bushwick, Brooklyn. Since opening in August 2015, Foster Sundry has evolved into a neighborhood hub for weekend brunch, weeknight groceries, coffee on your morning commute, a draft beer after work, and so much more. Their cheese counter, whole animal butcher, and produce section make grocery shopping a pleasure. Foster Sundry also offers catering and wholesale. Learn more at fostersundry.com. That's F-O-S-T-E-R-S-U-N-D-R-Y.com. Have you ever wanted to open a restaurant, launch your own food brand, or dive into the ever-changing world of food media? Well, buckle up. Join us for Aspiration to Action, a special live podcast on Monday, June 3rd at Haven's Kitchen in Manhattan. Zara Tangora and Bretton Scott, hosts of Life's a Banquet, will lead us through tales of the good, the bad, and the transformative. Featuring Food World innovators and HRN hosts Dana Cowan, host of Speaking Broadly, 
Eli Sussman, host of The Line, along with his brother Max, and Allison Kane, host of In the Sauce, in conversation with Jenny Britton-Bauer. Light refreshments will be provided by Paris Gourmet, Wolfer Estate Vineyard, and Tahani. Get your tickets before they sell out by going to heritageradionetwork.org action. And welcome back to the food scene on heritageradionetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael harlan Turkell, here again with Stacey Adamondo and her book, Piatti. The, the subtitle is Plates and Platters for Sharing, inspired by Italy. Um, and we'll, we'll talk about a little bit of the visuals because the plates and the platters themselves, I mean, and, and the photography by Linda Pugliese, I mean, it's just a beautiful book to look at, but it's an even better book to interact with. And you need to start somewhere. And I think it is really those building blocks that you talk about in the book. I mean, uh, having some kind of pantry to be able to exercise these recipes is, is obviously important. What do we need at our house to engage? Well, the beautiful thing about it is that you don't need much and that you can do a lot with what little you have. So, you know, again, I'm surrounded by some of the best markets in the world being in New York and uh, I cook from so many different cuisines as the editor-in-chief of Suburb, but I sort of thought, well, you know, I want this to be the same rustic, approachable, simplistic uh, look at food and your pantry that it would be if you were in the Italian countryside. So I thought, I'm not going to overcomplicate things with a lot of specialty ingredients. Um, most of the recipes in the book are things you can cook in 15 or 20 minutes. I mean, a lot of times, the time it takes for like a vegetable to wilt in the pan, it's like the dish is done, you can serve it, and it can sort of sit out at room temperature, um, which is amazing and, and by design. So, you know, I think the the pantry and um, the things to have on hand, like it's a combination, you know, if you're, if people are coming over and you're not wanting to like go out and go to the store, chances are between, you know, maybe some of the dried grains that you have in your pantry, uh, a couple jars of like oil packed anchovies, um, you know, maybe like a, a log of goat cheese that's lying around in the fridge, stuff like that. I think uh, you could make a, an impressive number of dishes from. And then if you're going to go to the market and you want the inspiration from there, I think mainly you're going to be shopping in the produce section. Um, you know, there are a couple uh, meat dishes in the book, just like really rustic things, again, that can sit out at room temperature and will just be just as good at that temperature as they were when they came out of the oven. But uh, and, and definitely a few seafood dishes, um, that's really fun and something that I think is really different and makes people feel really special when they come over your house. But largely, you know, it's a vegetable focused book that is meant to be inexpensive and affordable. And, you know, if it's going to be the first thing that you put out, you want it to be simple and not take you a ton of time or cost you a bunch of money or ingredients. The first time I ever met Jardinier, um, I thought it was like a pickle pot and I ate the whole damn thing. Then someone brought a sandwich over <laughs> and it was like the most, it was a revelation in, in not only pickles, but, uh, how these vegetables could make everything else better. Yeah. And that is also one of your antipasti building blocks, having that set away for your six foot sub. And mm -hmm. I love that you incorporated, you know, the Italian American <laughs> aspect into this. Um, are these things that you can buy in a pinch that you prefer people make at home? Or is, is the thing about Antipasi that you can make so much ahead and have so much at hand that it is the ease of not just serving, but when people come over, you don't have to plate shit. You can let them serve themselves. Yeah, well, I know. It's amazing because really the ease carries over into, I mean, it's from the cooking to the plating 
to the like attitude. Um, you know, basically I thought the idea of having those, those jars of vegetables as building blocks, nothing is like professionally pickled or, um, you know, preserved in the book. All of it is sort of like a quick preserve that you can keep in the refrigerator. But the idea is that when you open the refrigerator, it's like either that shelf on the door or like the top shelf that you don't use as much or something like that. There'd just be these colorful jars of produce left over from, you know, that great, uh, crop of cherry peppers that you saw in the market in the summer and you're saving them, you know, cause it's like, Oh, I only have one jar left. Um, and then when somebody special is coming over, you crack that thing open and it's like so exciting because you're like dying to dig into it. Those peppers are out of season. So there are just a couple moments that I thought, let me just, you know, be like a true old school Italian here and, and try and preserve like some of the, the fleeting flavors of certain seasons. And then there are other things like the Giardinera. I mean, with the vegetables we have available here and always, you can just like crank that thing out in 10 minutes and throw it in a jar and then probably take you, you know, 10 months to go through the jar. I mean, it takes a while. You can make a big batch and you can spoon that on top of everything. And the beauty of it and a lot of these things is that the either the oil that's used to preserve the vegetables or the brine that you use to pickle them is a flavoring in and of itself. So, you know, bread gets dunked in those things and it's like that's almost an antipasti itself. Um, and then you can also use that in dressings or spoon that on top of vegetables or, you know, I use some of the olive oil to like marinate cheese, um, that kind of thing. So it's like those little jars that you just like kind of have lying around can end up being a full meal or the accessory to many meals as you go. I love that. You mentioned that scarpetta, that swipe through the oil. It's one of my favorite things as are carbs in general. And you have this section of some of the greater Italian carbs that there ever were. Carta de Musica, um, grilled crostini, not just crostini, grilled crostini. (laughs) And we're, we're highlighting the word grilled, tirale and crostini. Um, you know, I've always seen those as, as maybe snacks rather than vehicles for something. Yeah. Um, how do they fit into the whole piatti antipasti world? Yeah, well, so bread obviously is just critical. I mean, the first moment you sit down on the table, we're all just like conditioned to expect bread now. And I think at home, having a really good loaf like is half, you know, it's like that in and of itself is just like delicious and impressive. But I didn't want people to have to, you know, make bread from scratch or, you know, like whip up a certain style of loaf, like specific to a region. That just sounded like too much work for an antipasti spread. So I went with products that were pretty easy to execute and that fit into that antipasti spread in sort of like a new way. Like, like you can go buy a cracker, but if you make this beautiful, like olive oil cracker with sea salt and herbs, it's just going to look so much more impressive. And it's another thing to talk about on your spread. You know, it's another thing to say, oh, I made those, you know, and have people be like, oh my God. I mean, it's so easy. Um, same thing with the Grissini. I mean, those are gorgeous. They're like, you can make them as long as you want. I usually make them as long as my baking sheet will allow, but they're huge and you can just like watch everyone kind of munching on them and you know, they're, they're sort of like a decoration as well as a really, really delicious treat. So I mean, they're ostensibly the best breadsticks out there. Oh my God, they're so good. I mean, God forbid you come home drunk at the end of a night and have a sack of those lying around because they will be gone by the morning and I am speaking from experience. <laughs> I mean, I saw a little more bread work throughout the book and I certainly underlined multiple times the garlic knots. Yeah. Um, because that is also one of those crossover that you see in pizzerias all over the place and so many pizzerias do it poorly. 
Yeah. Well, I definitely think of that as an Italian American thing. I mean, again, that's that's me. That's my identity. I was definitely coming at this book with a couple like kind of funny, you know, like that's that's not a very serious dish. Um, you see, right? Like you said, like shitty versions in every pizzeria possible. But I thought, okay, what's crappy about them? Like, what do we make fun of about these? And it's like bad dough. You know, they're using like garlic, uh, powdered garlic, not fresh stuff. And one in citric acid straight out of the jar. Oh God. So, so bad. But it's like, there's nothing wrong with a delicious fluffy ball of dough. That's like crisp on the outside. It's got sea salt and fresh garlic and herbs all over it. Like, okay, now I want that, that garlic knot. So I decided to make that version. And, you know, I kind of make a joke in the book. Like it's a really fun thing to make at a party and you just give everybody at the party like one or two knots and you're like, all right, show me what you got. So we all ended up like drinking a lot of wine one night and just like everybody was sort of laughing at the other ones, not like some people's were just gigantic and other people's were like tied into 15 different like twists and turns and ends up being kind of a riot. So, and then they, they make the house smell delicious if people are coming over. I mean, just like a good, like really easy, you can use store-bought dough. That's what I recommend in the book. Like go to your favorite pizzeria and just get what you already know you like. I mean, it's so simple. I, I really like how you describe the hands-on nature of having a garlic knot party. And I think I'm going to certainly do that someday <laughs> soon. But I really do think a lot of these recipes are so hands-on. And even in the descriptions, you talk about kind of the the, the lightness of of some of this technique. And one of my favorites, and we're jumping right into spring, we're, we're passing by winter because we oh, are bye. firmly in spring. <laughs> and we might not even talk about fall. Let's just stick to two seasons here. Live in the moment. The broccolini frittata. It is thin, it is flipped, it is topped with a whole bunch of pecorino romano, it has little anchovies on the side. Mm-hmm. Uh, talk to me about, well, first of all, that, that is a familiar recipe for you. Uh, who used to make that who used to make that for you and who you make that for now? Yeah, so that is a recipe from, well, it's inspired by my grandma Stella. So that's my mom's mom. Um, I mean, she was just the heart of our family in so many ways. She learned to cook from her mother and then my grandfather's mother. And so all pretty much every single recipe that she made was passed down from one of them. So And it was a type of food that, you know, you couldn't learn unless you were just kind of hanging around the kitchen and asking questions and saying, what are you doing now? And what's going in that? Um, And our whole lives, I mean, her kitchen smelled the same way, you know, all the same dishes always coming out of it. And it just really felt like home. So the frittata was something I think she probably made at least one every other day, if not every day. Um, and hers had, you know, maybe three or four eggs in them. I think you see a lot of people make frittatas at restaurants or bakeries and they're like 18 eggs and that's three inches thick. And it's like the most rich and filling thing you've ever had in your life. Like hers were just these thin, they're basically just thick enough to kind of coat the vegetable that was inside of them. And, you know, she'd make them in a nonstick skillet. And until she was in her 80s, I mean, until she died, she was basically flipping them herself in these big, heavy skillets. She'd throw like a huge dinner plate on top and just flip the thing over, you know, and and then slide it back into the pan to finish cooking the other side. So there was none of the fuss of like turning the oven on and like, is it done? I don't know. Did I overcook it? Is it too brown? It was like cook it on one side for a few minutes, cook it on the other side for a few minutes, bada bing, bada boom. Like this was everybody's 
you know, go-to dish in my family when people were coming over for breakfast or you just kind of, you know, didn't want to eat granola and yogurt or cereal or something again. I mean, now we can see it extended into lunch and dinner. It's not necessarily yes. tied to a specific meal. Whereas I think a lot of these uh, antipasti aren't even tied to specific holidays or occasions until I start reading the head notes and white wine clams. Yes, there's the Feast of Seven Fishes, but talk to me about your summer vacations as well. Ah, uh, yeah. So, you know, we grew up in, in the Northeast um, and basically went down to the Delaware shore and uh, up to Rhode Island and, you know, kind of hopped around the coast during the summers. And it was hilarious because, you know, again, this was just a basic food in our house was clams. So as a two-year-old, you know, I was eating clams and that didn't seem abnormal to me until, you know, you get to a restaurant. I had three brothers and sisters and we'd all sit down and, you know, one of us would say, um, I'd like the steamed clams. And the other one would be like, I'll have the artichokes. You know, it was like such a funny, like we, waitresses and waiters laughed at us all the time. Um, just like, oh, wow, like what adventurous eaters. But it was totally, you know, just the basic ingredients in our household. So, yeah, we had steamers down at the shore and um, linguine and clams was and still very much is like our absolute will not do Christmas Eve without it. Even when I celebrate Christmas Eve with my in-laws who aren't all Italian, I'm like, oh, do you mind if I make the clams? Because it's like I just it's the one time a year. I can't let that day go by without having them. And not to say you don't finish all the clams, but I love that there's a, a clam pizza recipe in there too. So there's oh, extensions yeah. off of these recipes. Um, another one that I found extremely provocative was the the grilled bacon wrap leeks. Mm. You know, and I've seen leeks of that size grilled in in other cultures. Spain, you have calcutta. Where does it lay in Italian, you know, uh, cuisine and and why bacon wrap and onion like that? I mean, why not? <laughs> yeah, well, I can't say that I've ever had a whole bacon wrapped leek in Italy, to be honest. But this was one of my, you know, sort of spin off interpretations. And I think leeks, I mean, it's very um, common in northern Italy. Um, you know, you'll sort of see them chopped up into, uh, you know, soups or, um, you know, egg dishes or pastas and that kind of thing. And I just thought, well, okay, everything tastes better with bacon. And, you know, in my opinion, a leek tastes the best on the grill when it's cooked over a fire. It's got that like singe on the end and a little bit of crispiness because otherwise when they're cooked, they kind of just get limp. Um, so I wanted to give it a little bit of texture. And I just thought, you know, again, like I think that sort of bacon pancetta world, I mean, you could probably use any of those or... Um, you know, even some kind of like prosciutto or something like that would probably be delicious on there. But I just thought, I don't know, let's just uh, let's put those two together and see what happens and keep this thing. I mean, that's a dish that takes less than 10 minutes. You said prosciutto. That's the magic word because you know I've been ogling that mini prosciutto and pecorino panini. <laughs> it had strawberry studded yeah, throughout the thing. Yeah, we're getting a lot of text messages about yeah, this dish. We, we, can, we can't even talk about it because <laughs> I haven't made it for myself, nor do I see it on the table in front of us. For Aww. shame. But from that, let, let's start moving a little bit into summer as well because the plentiful produce that you have to play with, not to say that, you know, winter and fall are, are terrible seasons, but this book is out now and we have, we're surrounded by things to, uh, you know, put on piatti. Um, I've already confessed my love of, of you know, zucchini uh, blossom fritters. You have a squash blossom fritter in here. Um, and then cornmeal fritters. Talk to me about frying in, in the summer and spring. Uh, yeah, of, of well, Italian you brought food. up the fried zucchini flowers before. And they're, I mean, 
you know, these are like almost just like a visual, you know, like you see one and you just think of Italy. Um, you're immediately transported into Italy when you see a squash blossom. So, you know, in our family, um, in the, in the, my, my relatives actually lived also, my American relatives lived in a four family house in New York. Um, I had my great aunt there, my grandmother and grandfather and uncle, and then my great grandmother, and they all lived in the same unit. And behind the house, there was this gorgeous, uh, vegetable garden that my uncle Joe up until the time they sold the house was still gardening. And he's 102 right now. And he still gardens and he still cooks, um, he actually cooks part-time in a restaurant at 102, not even kidding. So they would go out every summer and just take a paper bag and bring it out and just pluck as many zucchini flowers as they could fit in it and give it to my mom and she'd bring it home. And it was like, we just called them flowers and it was like flowers day and everybody would just hover around the stove and my mom would line a couple plates with like a bunch of paper towels and we'd just fry off as this really simple batter of the chopped up zucchini flowers, um, a little bit of grated cheese and like some fresh basil. And you just use a tiny bit of flour and water to bind it together and make a little, you know, kind of pancake out of it and fry that in olive oil. And the whole house smelled like it. And, you know, it's like they only really retain their crispiness for a few minutes out of the oil. So you just hover around. And when one came off, it was like, whose turn is it? You know, like, just like, give me my fix. And that was it. That was kind of like the day we got flowers and that, you know, it would come and go. So we look forward to it so much. But now walking around, you know, the Union Square Farmer's Market or all these great markets we have in, in well, everywhere. Farmer's markets are, are springing up everywhere now. They're so much more readily available, and now it's like, oh, I can just do this as like part of my, you know, repertoire when friends come over. Like, no big deal. I like how we've moved from grazing to hovering. Um, <laughs> yeah. But what I really want to know is where Joe works because he's the one that taught you the bracciolini, right? Yeah. So this the bracciolini. Okay. So you, so people might have heard of brajol. You know, it's um like usually a big braised uh, roll up of meat. So sometimes you'll see it with beef, sometimes you'll see it with pork, and most often you'll see it cooked into, you know, a red sauce. And that's, you know, very familiar. You'll see that on restaurant menus here in New York and, and all over the place. But I had never really had a brajolini until this one for my family. And it's made with veal, which, um, you know, say what you will about veal's history. Um, I think there are some amazing sustainable producers out there now all over the place. And um, it's actually, I mean, it's a more sustainable meat than, than beef because you don't have to feed it and raise it and, you know, get it really big and fat before you're able to eat it. Anyway, this was a veal dish that um, didn't have to stew for a long time. It cooks in just a few minutes, basically the time that it takes to sear the veal in the pan it's done. You want to sort of barely cook it through. So it's really tender. And she would pound the veal really, really thin and just put a little piece of provolone cheese. So it's got like a little bit of that bite to it. Some, um, seasoned breadcrumbs that had some herbs and garlic, and then a small piece of prosciutto and roll that up, put it on a little skewer and griddle it. And it is like the, it's indescribable. Like it is melt in your mouth, perfection, salty, like the veal is super buttery and it's just got like, you know, comes right off. I use a cast iron pan, comes right off the pan, like a little bit of like crispy breadcrumbs falling around it. Oh my God, it is so good. <laughs> you know, we can keep on talking about these delicious meat dishes. There's a seared tenderloin carpaccio in the summer mm -hmm. section. There's an amazing plethora of Italian sausages with roasted cherry, tomatoes, and shallots. But let's get 
not healthy per se, but let's let's have our fruits and vegetables, specifically mm. fruits, because in the summer, well, you talk about all the cherry varieties, uh, Dorone, Mora, uh, Amarena, but grilling apricots, marinating blackberries and cantaloupe, fresh peaches and cucumber salad, uh, a nectarine salami and arugula salad. Uh, talk to me about incorporating fruit into these meals. Well, I mean, every fruit dish is better with a little salami, wouldn't you agree? <laughs> but yeah, so, you know, you're walking around these farmer's markets in in Italy in the summer, and it's like, I actually have had moments where the vendors are sort of just, you know, they'll wave you over and just like, you know, like put a, put a fruit or a piece of vegetable, you know, in your basket because they're just like, you have to try this. It's so delicious. Um, and, you know, so the, this, the market baskets are bursting with all these colors and flavors, and it's like... You, you don't want to do too much to it, right? You just want to keep it simple. I mean, fruit is amazing in and of itself in the summer when it's at its peak. So I just did little things like I made a chili oil using dried chili flakes. I mean, that's ubiquitous on every Italian table. So, you know, I just sort of basically heat them up in some olive oil and let that cool down and it makes this red spicy oil. And I would drizzle that on, you know, peaches and cucumbers together and uh, put a little salt over the top. And it's like, just can sit out. It gets better as it sits because the oil's just sort of like, you know, pooling around it and marinating it a little bit. And the cucumbers are starting to break down and get a little bit of, of their juiciness going. So that's like, quote, a salad, you know, and something that is so easy to put alongside if you've got a charcuterie board at your house when friends come over or, you know, you made a more elaborate dish and you just want something a little bit bright and fresh to contrast it. Um, things like that. I just thought, you know, they kind of make themselves with when the, when the fruit is good and then you just kind of accent them with a little bit of Italian inspiration. It's interesting because in the blackberry and cantaloupe, there's a little bit of fish sauce in there too, which is a nice little riff. Um, and who's to say that fish can't be a salad. I mean, you do have a fruit de mar. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, I, there's, all sorts of sort of chilled um, salads, you know, and that that word is used broadly because I guess anything that's served chilled and includes a medley of ingredients could be called a salad. But right, I have a um, chilled seafood salad in the book that's got, you know, really gently like blanched scallops and some um, calamari and shrimp and a lot of finely chopped celery and and, um, lemon and olive oil. And to me, I mean, there's sort of, again, like a lovely contrast that happens when you bring out something sort of puckery and sour like that. Um, the texture is really great and it just has this wow factor. I mean, it doesn't take much seafood to pull it off really easy. You can make all of the ingredients, you know, poach them and chill them a day or two in advance and then just dress them when everyone comes over. So it's like no big deal, but it looks so impressive and it's just something different than like the cheese and crackers that everybody puts out. And you get to say scungili if you have conch in it too, <laughs> which is one of my favorites. And and lastly, panzanella. I think that is one of those now ubiquitous recipes in yeah. a lot of people's repertoires. Uh, but with yours, you combined tomatoes, raw beets, and strawberries. Yeah, you know, I thought about foregoing panzanella because it is kind of, you know, there's a lot of bad panzanella out there. Like someone will just like put some croutons and mix them in with chopped tomatoes and call it a panzanella. And that is just, some of them are not good. But I thought, okay, how can I take this dish that, again, people are familiar with, they're not intimidated by, maybe they, you know, they do like even those mediocre versions. Well, I'm going to really blow their mind with this one. So I took it up a notch. I, you know, you have to include the juicy ripe tomatoes because that's just like, you know, everybody loves that. But I also put in um, some really finely chopped 
ripe strawberries. So again, you're just getting like that burst of the, I mean, the aromatics come out of that. You're getting that little burst of sweetness to counteract all the acidity from the tomatoes. And then I don't think a lot of people realize you can eat beets raw, but they're so great in salads. So, I mean, you get your fingertips a little bit dirty, but you don't have to worry about anything else like the cooking, the peeling, all of that just kind of happens. You get it done with right off the bat. And then you, I slice them into, you know, sort of like little batons and throw them into the panzanella. And it almost takes the place of that crunchy crouton sensation. Like once the bread sops up all the, you know, dressing and marinade from it, um, basically you still have that crispy beet that's never going to wilt or lose its crunch. Um, and it also kind of leaves this lovely trail of beet stain across the salad. So it's so beautiful. And I think people again are just like, wow, this is something I haven't seen. And it's based on this really great tradition we're all very familiar with. Another plate to pull that bread through. And, and lastly, piatti, what does the word even mean? Ah, yes. Well, it's the Italian word for plates. So, you know, it just kind of generally refers to dishes, but we used it in this context just thinking, you know, these are all big sort of family style plates. Um, they're all meant to be shared. They're all meant to serve a crowd. Um, they're all meant to just like go back for more and help yourself from. Um, so I thought the word was a good fit. I actually dug a little deeper about the word and found out that in older musical scores, uh, piatti is the Italian term for symbols. So I really? feel like piatti is really just a musical punctuation to the meal. I love it. That is beautiful. Well, if you're not hungry by now, I don't know why you're <laughs> listening to this. You should run out, get piatti today. Stacey, thanks so much Thank for being here. Thank you on. so much. You've been listening to The Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel. Hoping to have you back here next Tuesday at 3. A big thank you to our sponsors, Foster Sundry. Music by Cookies and Matt Patterson Engineering. Cheers. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.